you were visiting us this morning, uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke, uh, fast moving through it. We have a large passage uh, this morning. It's got some gold in it. And for that reason, I'm not going to be diving into all the details of every little point in this passage. We're going to be flying through it. I'm also just going to start us by just reading the first three verses of our passage together this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 19. It's Luke chapter 19, and we're going to continue with Dr. Luke's story from verse 45. So Luke chapter 19, verse 45. This is the word of God to us this morning, church. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Would you pray with me? Lord God, how sweet the sound of amazing grace. The grace that you have poured upon this community. And what a privilege this morning to gather together with all the saints and sing your praises, Lord, and to welcome you folks into our community. Lord, as we open up these words, your words to us this morning, we pray, Lord, help us. Help me. Send your Holy Spirit into our midst. Open our eyes to freshly see the Lord Jesus Christ, and to bow the knee before him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a song that's become almost the anthem of an entire generation. It's been viewed on YouTube more than 1.5 billion times. It's one of the most popular songs for children in the 21st century, sung by the famous Broadway star Idina Menzel. Uh, What song am I talking about? Well, none other than the theme song of that famous uh, Disney movie, Frozen, sung by uh, Princess Elsa, Let It Go. Uh, Here are some lyrics from that famous song. Not that you need my help to remember it, parents. Uh, It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Uh, Closet confession uh, this morning. Uh, Charlotte and I actually uh, went on a date to see Frozen at the movies uh, back when we were dating in 2013. Uh, But apart from a catchy tune, uh, Let It Go, it really taps into the core of how we think about who we are as people in our Western culture. We think about what this song uh, and perhaps every Disney princess is saying about how to find happiness and meaning in your life. You've got to live an authentic life. That's what you need to do. You need to be true 
to your deepest desires and feelings. No rules or restrictions that might stop you from authentic living. You need to break free from them. You must be able to spread your wings and fly in life. Any authorities in your life that, that, that might be pushing against you, you must stand against them and you must fight against them until you're able to overcome and be free. That's the path to true happiness. That's the path to joy. That's the path to peace and meaning, the good life. That's what our world needs most, more freedom for people to be true to themselves. You know, the truth is that our culture views authority figures in like mind with deep suspicion. And that's not all without good reason. Uh, There are many examples throughout our history of people abusing their power. Uh, Many examples. Think about the sexual abuse scandals that have rocked the church time and time again, and nearly every institution in our society. Combine that with, in Australia, our mateship culture and natural suspicion of leaders. And we here find authority figures extremely hard to trust. Uh, This week in all the papers, it's been about revelations of Scott Morrison taking on multiple secret cabinet ministries. And as Australians, we think, we think that's scandalous. What on earth was this guy doing? Why would he want all of that control and power over all these different things? We're immediately suspicious. Uh, The truth is, as a nation, we have an authority problem. We are deeply uncomfortable with being under the authority of others. But there is a kind of authority that's actually beautiful. There is a kind of authority that is matched with wisdom and love. The authority of a father with his little son who forbids him from playing beside the road, though he fights and cries and screams about it. Like the teacher who pours herself out for a class, though they constantly disrespect her, disciplining some of the class for the benefit of the others and patiently walking beside all of them. Like the leader who makes a decision that's deeply unpopular, costly to their reputation, but for the good of those they serve. See, our passage today is all about authority. The authority that Jesus has over every single person. And as Christians, we might like that as an idea. The idea of Jesus having authority. But it's actually something that in practice makes us deeply uncomfortable. That is why, though our census suggests nearly 50% of Australians describe themselves as being Christian, anecdotally, I'd say very few people are actually genuinely followers of Christ. Maybe it's more like 5 to 10%. It's easy to agree with certain facts about Jesus, but it's a very different thing to submit to his authority and allow him to call the shots in your life. Now, I want to show you today not simply why Jesus is, has that kind of authority, but I want to show you, and I believe this passage is meant to show us why that to entrust yourself to his authority is a beautiful thing. If you're a note taker this morning, I've entitled this message, The Master of All. There's three uh, points that come from this text, this passage, but one hope for us this morning as a church from this passage for us, for our good, 
And that is simply this, that we would joyfully surrender to the master of all. That's what I believe God intends to address us from this passage with this morning, this encouragement to have a joyful heart of surrender to the master of all. So let's dive in to look at our passage uh, with point number one, and that is the authority of Jesus questioned. Uh, last week, we had an opportunity to stop and stare at Jesus in his procession towards Jerusalem. Uh, we got to slow down and, and, and we saw how Jesus confounded the expectations of his disciples. They're expecting a warrior, but they got the humble king of peace. They're expecting an earthly king, but they got the divine son, the king over all creation. They're expecting quick justice upon their enemies, and yet, What was revealed to them is the king of mercy who was brought to tears at the plight of his opponents and had come even to die for their sake. And in our passage, the procession has ended and Mark in his gospel reports that these events took place the very next day inside of the temple itself. And we're going to see that when it comes to Jesus, you can't be neutral He's so controversial. His claims are so bold, it is not possible to sit on the fence with Jesus. Read with me again verses 45 and 46 from our passage. It says the following. Luke writes, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus has come, we're told, into the outer courts of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, a court, an area that was open to both Jews and Gentiles. It was overseen by the Sadducees who were at that time the kind of the, the, the liberal religious kind of ruling class of Jesus' day. It was a bustling marketplace with trade for pilgrims coming to the holy city and the holy temple to worship buying and selling animals for sacrifice, also trading Roman coins that had kind of blasphemous pictures of Roman emperors who claimed to be gods on them for more Jewish coins that they could use to give to the temple. Uh, It was important for the running of the temple. It was also important for making loads of money for the Sadducees as well. And Mark's account has Jesus absolutely enraged. He comes in and he turns over the tables of those trading and he turns over their chairs. In John's account, he makes a whip and starts chasing people away. Jesus says, this was meant to be a place of prayer to God, but you've made it into a place where you forcibly rip off and steal from other people. Now, the obvious question is, what did the Sadducees who were running these markets make of all of this? And the answer is, they were absolutely infuriated. I mean, imagine if someone came to church and did the same here as well, started coming out the back and turning over tables and things, throwing over chairs and saying, you're ripping people off. I mean, first of all, you'd be like, they're crazy out of their mind. But imagine you begin to like talk to them and know they're they're, they're genuinely accusing the church of ripping people off. You would begin to think, well, Who gives you the right? On what evidence? On what grounds are you doing this? Who do they think they are to come in here and treat us like that? It's exactly their response to Jesus. Read with me verse 47 and 48. 
It says, And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus drives out all these people trading on the grounds of the temple, misusing his father's house, and then carries on teaching in the exact same place. But there will be serious consequences for this display of his authority. He has kind of knowingly lit a match underneath these religious leaders. And now they want his blood. They are out to kill him. All the prominent members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, gather together, meet and begin to plot his demise. The chief priests, the experts in the Old Testament, and the leading men of the city, united together in a mission to put an end to this man. I mean, who does this guy think he is coming in here like this? What gives him the right to tell us about how to administer this temple? But there's one significant challenge to their plan. And that's that Jesus' teaching is so powerful that everybody who's listening is absolutely hanging on his every word. And so how could they kind of interrupt the crowds and arrest him? And so after some time, they change tact and look to just confront him directly. In chapter 20, verse 1, we read the following. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said, tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? This is really the key question of our passage. What gives you the right to come in here And teach the things you're teaching. Turning over tables. Driving people out like this. Whose authority is this based on? And who gave that authority to you? We read on. Verse 3. He answered them. I will also ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John. From heaven. Or from man. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, on the first read of this passage, you might feel like Jesus is being maybe a little random or maybe a little bit sneaky in kind of asking this question, maybe a little bit evasive. What does John the Baptist have to do with anything? But John the Baptist is actually key to understanding Jesus' authority. He was a prophet sent from God to prepare the way for Jesus to come. The climax of his ministry was to point at Jesus and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the promised chosen king. At Jesus' baptism by John, the Holy Spirit descended upon him and a voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
You see, Jesus is making a, crit- a critical, a crucial point about determining his authority. What you make of John the Baptist will determine what you make of him and his authority. You see, the problem for these members of the ruling religious elite was that they'd already made their mind up. John the Baptist was not a prophet. His baptism was man-made. It was merely human. They had not answered his call to repentance in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. They didn't believe it was from God, and they didn't think it applied to them either way. But there was a catch for them. Their perspective about John the Baptist was hugely out of touch with what the majority of people held to be true. Most people, we learn, were deeply convinced that John's ministry was from heaven, a kind of respectful way of saying from God. And they had responded with repentance and faith in God. And these religious leaders were aware that publicly revealing what they truly believed, as a consequence, they might be stoned to death by the people, a punishment for blasphemy against a prophet. And so Jesus, filled with both divine authority and wisdom from the ages, has laid a perfect trap. Tell the truth and face the people's wrath. Or tell a lie and acknowledge Jesus' ministry as divine in origin. Yet rather than being truthful and revealing what they genuinely believe, they decide to answer in the way that will best serve their goals with, basically, we don't know, no comment. The truth is they do have a comment to make. They're being deceitful by saying they do not know. The truth would be to say, we do not believe, John, or you are from God. But they're spineless. They're afraid of people the very people they're supposed to be leading. And so Jesus has in this way revealed that they are not the sort of people that should be in authority over God's people. They're prejudiced. They're cowardly. They're clinging to power. They're unable to recognize the incarnate Son of God himself. And Jesus responds in turn by refusing to reveal the divine origins of his authority. See, these religious leaders' problem was not that they didn't understand Jesus' claim to authority, It was that they understood it more fully than most and they simply could not accept it. See, Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins in chapter 5, verse 20. He claimed that he would return to judge the earth in chapter 12, verse 40. He claimed that he could control the natural elements, the wind, the water, the seas. He claimed to have power to raise the dead. He claimed to be the divine son of God, taking talking of God as his very father and claiming authority over the dwelling place of God himself. And to them, Jesus was a troublemaker and a threat. There was no way his authority was legitimate and he needed to be dealt with and dealt with urgently. And that is point number one, the authority of Jesus questioned. Not just the authority of Jesus questioned, point number one, but point number two, the authority of Jesus explained. See, Jesus in his grace is going to explain the basis of his authority to the crowds, despite the demands of the religious leaders who have already made their minds up about him. But he's going to go a step further. He's not just going to explain the basis of his authority, but he's going to explain why he's worthy to be an authority as well. You know, just because you have legitimate authority 
doesn't mean I should entrust myself to you. You know, think with me. Classic case, Vladimir Putin, legitimate president of Russia. But I don't think I'm going to trust myself into his hands. He just doesn't appear to be that trustworthy. Well, let's read the account and see how Jesus proves that he is. Read with me verse 9 of chapter 20. It says the following. And he began to tell the the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. And the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to himself, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. And Jesus tells this story to the crowds that are listening to him teach in the temple. And he uses a powerful Old Testament metaphor, the metaphor of a vineyard. You know, in Isaiah chapter 5 and in several other places in the Old Testament, God describes himself as being the owner of a vineyard that is producing no fruit at all. It's a picture of his people. It's a picture of his kingdom having become corrupt, not living faithfully as they should be, being the blessing to the world they were meant to be, showing love and kindness and peace and patience and faithfulness and godliness to the world. And so when Jesus says a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenant farmers, immediately people listening carefully would have been aware that this parable is about God's kingdom and its rulers, its tenants, the people of God and the religious leaders. And what follows is a description of repeated efforts by the owner of this vineyard to take what is rightfully his. And the horrible, the shameful treatment of the tenants towards him and those he sends. But the owner of the vineyard is incredibly gracious. He's almost recklessly gracious towards these tenants, repeatedly sending servant after servant after servant. Until a final attempt to claim what is rightfully his, he sends his beloved son. Notice that is exactly what the father describes of Jesus at his baptism back in chapter 3. Jesus then describes a scene of absolute wickedness and madness as these tenants, seeing the son, believe they have an opportunity. And we don't know what they were thinking. I mean, perhaps they assumed that this owner had died and given the vineyard to his son, and that they will be able to claim it. But we're not told why, but compelled by greed, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they beat him, and they kill him. You know, in this parable, Jesus is describing what he has come to do, and what the consequence will be for those responsible. Jesus is the owner's son. 
the son of God. And the religious leaders are but tenants, caring for the kingdom on his behalf. What authority does he have? The very authority of the owner of the kingdom, God himself. But just as they have shamefully treated the many messengers, the many prophets who have come in before, they will take the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, and reject him and beat him and have him crucified. And the result of all this, says Jesus, is that justice will come. Those tenants will be judged and God will destroy these leaders and take his kingdom away from them and give them to others. And the crowds, and especially the religious leaders, are so clearly tracking what Jesus is saying that they are in disbelief and say, surely not. No way. Will God really strip the leadership of his people from the Jewish elite and give it to others? Give it to even Gentiles? But Jesus is absolutely serious. And so he directly looks at them and says the following. In verse 17, we read the following. It says, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus explained to the crowd that there are two different ways of living in this world, two different building projects in this world, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. You see, since the beginning of time, humanity has been trying to chart their own way in life without God, trying to carve out happiness and meaning to life without their maker. These are the builders building the kingdom of man. This is the myth of the self-made man. You can be whoever you want to be in life. You can do you. Chart your own course and and do not let anyone tell you anything different. When you're trying to run your own life on your own terms, you are, according to the Bible, building the kingdom of man just like these religious leaders. And just like these religious leaders, you'll see Jesus and you won't want to build your life upon him. See, those trying to build the kingdom of man will reject Jesus as the foundation stone, exactly as these religious leaders have done. But in the kingdom God is building, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the most crucial element upon which the whole building will be built. And to stumble over Jesus, to take offense at his claims and reject him, is to be destroyed And is to face crushing when he falls upon the world in judgment. See, the truth is that this rejection of Jesus' authority for our own building projects isn't particularly unique to these leaders. It's actually the most natural thing in the world. It's our instinct. In John chapter 3 verse 19, it says the following. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. The truth of scripture is we all do wicked things, all of us. The most natural thing in the world, therefore, is not to want 
our wicked deeds to be exposed. We all have a natural bias against accepting the authority of Jesus. He exposes us. Like a light, we feel exposed and we want to run and hide or to reject him or point the finger back. And for most of us, this isn't so much as an open hostility as an apathy. I'm just not sure about Jesus and I don't really care to find out. Maybe one day. But Jesus in telling this story is not simply for seeing a tragedy that the tenants will overcome the Son of God. He's pointing to his mission. In John chapter 10, Jesus would go on to say the following in verse 17. He'd say, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I've received from my Father. You see, Jesus perfectly reveals the heart of God for us. That is a heart of humble self-sacrifice for those he loves. You see, who would endure the kind of injustice that this owner has endured? No one would. Yet he willingly sent his son to take our punishment upon himself. He came, the divine son, and lived the perfect life we failed to live in our place. He came and died upon that cross, the death of deaths, taking the judgment that we alone deserved. And he rose again in victory over sin and the grave. Death has lost its sting that all who put their trust in him might be reconciled to God and enjoy life that never ends with him. See, Jesus in this parable is explaining more than simply the basis of his authority as the divine son. He's also explaining why his authority is such a good thing. See, the real question about, or what's the real reason, sorry, why we find authority in Australia so hard that we've been talking about, the real reason is trust. We find it hard because of trust. We question whether those in power are really good. Can they be trusted? Will they really act in our best interests? Or will they abuse their power for their own ends? Will they really deliver as promised? Or is it all fake? You know, many years ago, uh, I was sitting with a brother who uh, was caught in a significant sin, but not showing any signs of repentance. So I, I sat with him and I said, look, get out your Bible and what I want you to do is I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 11 through to 13. And so I got him to read it out. And I said, when you finish reading it, you tell me what, it think, what you think it means for you. And so he read the following passage. It says, Paul writes, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so I asked this brother after he had read it, I said, tell me, what do you think this means for you? And he said to me this. He said, I guess it means you should have nothing to do with me. And I, I encouraged him. I said, look, the truth is Christ died for you. Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed. But the reason why I wanted you to read that is to, is to realize you can't keep calling yourself a Christian and living this way. You cannot. You need to seriously stop doing this. You're bringing dishonor to the name of Jesus. 
Anyway, we left that meeting, and I, I thought it had gone really well until I received a letter where this brother wrote to me and said, basically, how dare you make me feel so terrible? How dare you tell me about how I should be living my life? And it was this really long, angry, sad letter, and they ended up you know, walking away, as, as far as I know, from following Jesus. Now, the question I want us to think about this morning is, why did this person ultimately refuse to stop living in this way and turn to Jesus? The answer is trust. They didn't trust the authority of Jesus. What Jesus was asking them to do or to give up was, in fact, best for them. Now, their anger, of course, was directed at me, but I'm only the messenger opening the word of Christ. Their own lips declared what Jesus was saying to them in and through his word. But the sad thing about it is that rejecting the authority of Jesus over our lives is always such a tragedy when you see how worthy he is of our trust. The king of limitless power and authority who would willingly suffer and die for us. No one in history has or will ever display the kind of selflessness he has because no one has ever given up for our sake as much as Christ has. No one has shown a greater love and compassion than him. Therefore, no one is more worthy of our trust than he is. It's so ironic how this parable ends. Jesus, having explained the authority, his authority as the owner's son, the son of God, and having predicted his coming betrayal and death, while the religious leaders, in a rage, attempt to do the very thing he has just been talking about. And that is point number two. The authority of Jesus explained, but not just the authority of Jesus explained, our final point for our time together, the authority of Jesus applied. We now come to the third and final section of our passage. The religious leaders are infuriated by Jesus and their inability to stop him. And so this is the first of two traps they attempt to lay for him. But Luke has placed this passage here with one specific application in mind for us. Why don't you read with me chapter 20, verse 20 to 22. It says the following. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he did, in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, We know you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? This is actually the only instance in the Bible where Jesus talks directly about the relationship followers of Jesus are to have with those in authority over them. You could easily preach a whole sermon series on this topic. See, the strategy of the Sanhedrin is going for in the question is really aimed at disrupting and derailing Jesus in two different directions. And so they start with buttering him up, and then they ask about this controversial tax. This is the tribute tax that they're referring to, a tax paid directly to the pagan emperor Tiberius at the time, a day's wage, no small amount, and hated by everyone. See, Tiberius was not only the leader of the occupying force, but claimed to be one of the gods of the pantheon. Uh, It said so on his denarius, and kind of funny on the back, it was his mum who apparently was his high priest. Uh, Say that you support this tax. 
lose your popularity with the average person who hates it. But say you don't support it, you have an opportunity given to them on a platter to hand you over to the Romans for insubordination. And so we read on in verse 23 to 26, Jesus' answer. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. And Jesus' response is brilliant. Ask for, ask for a denarius, a coin, as I said, worth a day's wages from those who are trying to trap him. I mean, off the cuff, showing that they use Roman coins for themselves. And he asked whose image is on it. The coin has the image, the markings, the likeness of Caesar. So Jesus says it belongs to Caesar and it's right to give back to him what belongs to him. And there's a kind of principle here, isn't there? We have obligations towards those who God has set in authority over us. We have a duty to glorify God by honoring and submitting to them. But though this principle is true in context, it is not the main point Jesus is trying to make here. Jesus' point is not so much about what we owe Caesar, but it's about what we owe God. See, if coins have the image, the markings, the likeness of Caesar on them, where can we find the image, the markings, the likeness of God? What are the things that are marked as belonging to and therefore should be given to God? And the answer is we are. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, he says, they were challenging Jesus at a political level. He was challenging them at a much deeper, more ancient, more personal level. They were made as God's image, created to be like him in his holiness and love. Jesus says, in effect, by all means, let Caesar have the denarius if his likeness and inscription are on it. But only if you let God have what he has stamped his likeness on and written his inscription on you. See, Genesis 1, 26 to 27 teaches us that God has made us in his image with his imprint on us. And this is the right application of the truth that Jesus is the divine son and has all authority. He has authority not just to clear the temple, but over our very lives. Though we have obligations to lesser authorities in this world, like our bosses at work or state and national leaders, our very lives belong to him. As Paul goes on to say, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The important application of Jesus' authority that Luke wants us to see this morning is that our very lives belong to him. We are marked with his image like a Roman coin. Therefore, the crucial question we must consider this morning is this. Is that how I am living? Am I living as though I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, recently I was chatting with someone uh, who was confused about the many people in their life who call themselves a Christian, but seem to live in a very different way to Jesus. And this was really puzzling them. And it led to this kind of beautiful conversation about the difference between Christian in, being Christian in name and being a true follower of Christ. You can even be really religious and go to church and read the Bible and learn Know lots of things about God, but that does not make you a follower of Christ. 
A Christian is someone who has made Jesus their Lord and Savior, their master, and has a deep love for Christ and a desire to follow his ways. Not perfectly, but their heart is to follow. You see, you can know many things about Jesus and still be a devil. The devil knows his Bible better than most Christians, but he doesn't love Jesus better. You know, just as we close by way of application, if you're here this morning and Jesus is not the Lord and Savior of your life, I want to thank you for being here. We are so glad you're here. We love people that are on a journey to get to know Jesus. The right application of this passage is to put your trust in Jesus today. To bridge the gap from knowing things about him, actually following him, to have him as your Lord and Master. Speak to someone about that. Join our Christianity Explored course that's, that's starting in a couple of weeks. But I think there's a, a second application for us today that I just really wanted to, to pause on. And that's that you're here today, and although you're a follower of Jesus, you realize that the significant areas of your life that you are withholding from Christ. You know, maybe it's money. You know, if the leaders of the church or maybe a close Christian friend were to see your finances, you would be deeply embarrassed because you know you're not being generous. If everyone gave with the same faith and generosity as you do, we'd need to close. And you're struggling because there's, there's things that you really want, like renovations or holidays or a car or private education for your kids. And you keep saying it'll change, but it never does. Because the truth is that this is an area you're struggling to submit to Christ. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you've started dating someone and they are amazing. You've been praying for so long. God has finally answered and sure, they don't go to church, and you're not 100% where they're at spiritually, but there's grace for that, right? Maybe it's the kids, and you know that worshiping Jesus is really important. But when you were growing up, you had so few opportunities as a child, and it's amazing what God has provided for your kids, and you would hate for them to miss out. Plus, there's good news. Sport is only on every other Sunday, so you can still be here 50% of the time. Or maybe it's about a home. And Sydney is so crazy expensive, right? Like prices are absolutely through the roof and we could never afford. But to have a nice home, that would be so amazing. And sure, God is using us so much in church, but this is house up the coast. It's amazing. Where will we go to church? We'll worry about that later. You know, if you're here this morning and you're aware that there are significant areas of your life that you are struggling to submit to the Lordship of Christ, and there is a simple application for you this morning. It's to stop and stare at the beauty of the one who would surrender all for you. And then to pray a dangerous prayer, recommitting your entire life to the one who owns you. Praying a prayer that thanks the Lord for the precious price that he's paid. Confessing that you've been withholding from him what is not yours to keep. 
asking him that you want to telling him you want to surrender everything that you have to him, that nothing you will withhold to give to him all of your possessions, your time, your energy and passion, your talents to say, all of this I give to you. Anything you will have me do, I will do. Any place you will lead, I will go. My life and my breath all belong to you. Simply lead me on your path. You know, reading this message reminded me uh, of the story of God at work in my life over the years. You know, many of you will know that growing up, I was determined to become a doctor. And that was my heart's desire. That's what I wanted to do. That was my plan. As God grew me in my faith, I was challenged to surrender my life to Jesus. And in and through a series of events, I was led to Indonesia for two years where God grew me in a heart for the Bible. And then he led me here to you guys. See, Jesus has all authority. And you can trust him. And to surrender all to him has been the greatest privilege and joy of my life. Would we joyfully surrender, friends, church, to the master of all? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you this morning that though the authorities in this world are so often broken and mired by sin, You have all authority in heaven and on earth. And you have demonstrated to us so beautifully, so powerfully, that you are worthy of all our trust. Lord God, we confess that so often we are slow to trust you, Lord. Quick to trust things of this world and slow to trust in you. Lord God, as your people this morning gathered before your throne, we want to ask and pray, help us trust you more, Lord. Help us to see you rightly, the one who controls everything and the one for whom was willing to bleed that we might be reconciled to you. Lord God, I pray that if anyone this morning has an area of genuine wrestle in this, an area of their life where they're struggling to surrender to your authority, Lord God, would you minister to them this morning? Lord God, would you help them to see that joy and life awaits in handing that to you? Lord, we will be a church that ever increasingly is giving you the place you rightly deserve in our lives and enjoying the fruit of joy and peace that comes with walking with and knowing you, the King of all. And we praise in Jesus' name.